Welcome to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. When people are injured due to negligence or while on the job, they need all the help they can get. Doctors Armin Feldman and Mike Bummer help ensure they get it. Join them as they discuss the newest medical subspecialty of medical legal consulting. Learn how attorneys can gain a competitive advantage in PI, workers' comp, and medical malpractice cases. Armin and Mike can help you better understand the medical issues in your cases, leading to larger settlement amounts and the best possible medical care for clients. They can help save you time and increase case value, all without breaking the bank. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Armin Feldman, along with my friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Bummer. And we have some really interesting things to talk about today. At the end of the last episode, Mike mentioned a really interesting standard of care review that he did. And let's start with that, Mike. Hi, everyone. Dr. Mike Bummer here. We understand as medical legal consultants that our attorneys know a lot about medicine. Many of them have been practicing for 10, 20, 30 years, but we also know that they're not physicians. 99% of them haven't been to medical school or done a residency, haven't been in an operating room or an emergency room. And so one of the common things that I get asked, and I really love this part of my my job is doing standard of care reviews for them. And Armin, is it okay if I just take a second and kind of explain the broad nature of what that is? Yeah, it sounds like a good way to go. All right. So the standard of care review is really usually a medical negligence case where the attorney has a basic question on was the standard of care met? Was it breached? Was it breached by by a, a procedure or a, a treatment that should not have been done or or the lack of a decision being made? And then ultimately, did that decision or lack of decision cause the damages that the patient, the, the attorney's client, in fact, then suffered and went on to, to suffer from? And we're brought in, usually in the early stages, to analyze these cases for these exact points and also teach our attorneys about the different medicine involved in the matter and the different uh, anatomy involved or the dis- different treatment decisions that are uh, the the doctors in the case are are being scrutinized over. Mike, I think that second point you make is just so important. So not only are we going to discuss the uh, the standard of care issue, but we want to give attorneys their preliminary education with regard to the medicine that they're going to need to know. You know, that's right. And I've often made uh, videos. There's a there's a program online that's free. It's called Loom, if anyone's ever seen it. You can essentially talk and create or screen share at the same time. I often make my attorneys Loom videos that explain anatomy because a lot of these cases are surgical, whether they're orthopedic or, you know, a gallbladder surgery going wrong or whatever it might be. And so really I view it as our job as an earlier consultant to educate them so that they can make the best decision for their money and time and well, all of their resources going forward. Yeah. And that's, that's you, Mike, you are on the cutting edge of technology and that's, uh, it's really cool to hear that. So what's the case? So this was a, a case where the attorney asked me to jump in and, and determine if standard of care was in fact breach and more so did it directly cause 
the severe harm to this this woman. So she was a middle-aged woman that went to the emergency room in the morning, which she was just first complaining of difficulty swallowing. And they worked her up for for difficulty swallowing. She was vomiting a little bit, but notably her blood pressure was 208 over 143. Her heart rate was 85. And this is this is very high, right, Armin? Right. So as I'm sure most of our listeners know, normal blood pressure would be 120 over 80. So if your blood lower number, your diastolic number is over 90, that's a concern. And certainly if it's over 95, it should raise some red flags. Exactly. So they treated her by uh, giving her one dose of, of an IV blood pressure medication that afternoon. So it took about three hours to do that. And they scanned her for a obstruction in her throat. And they also, because of her high blood pressure, they did do a CT scan, which is reasonable, right? You have to make sure that right. she, she's at that point. Uh, the, I guess they were worried about her having a stroke or you know a blood clot. So they, unfortunately then, they, after treating her, they did not do a set of discharge vitals. There were no notes or discussion about her hypertensive evaluation, and there was no plan or you know management course that was outlined for her, and they did not give her any discharge medications. They didn't yeah, do a no, Go ahead. No, Mike. Also, she had that trouble swallowing, but wasn't she always also having vomiting? She did. Yeah. I'm sorry. I used the complicated word emesis, but yes, yes. She's, she was vomiting. Yes. Okay. So those were two symptoms that we're probably going to come back to, right? Yeah, exactly. So she was sent home and let me say it again. There was no set of discharge vitals, major, major error that I was able to kind of put on the attorney's radar and that we commonly look at. So she later that same night, her, her, luckily, she has a friend who was still worried about her. She was still having similar complaints, took her to a different ER. Her blood pressure when she got there was 195 over 131. She had a throbbing headache and they did a CT scan at this point and it showed that she had a stroke. Uh, so, Mike, when you said that they didn't do vitals at the end of that first emergency room visit, so... For our listeners, vital signs. So the vital signs always include a blood pressure measurement. Exactly. And usually a heart rate, a respiration rate, a temperature to see if someone has fever, and uh, uh, oftentimes a weight or a BMI. But that's that's really your, your primary vital signs. Right. And she ultimately suffered this stroke that she still has severe impact from in her life. And what I was able to point out to the attorney is that she missed her window for neurointervention to receive TPA, which is a clot buster. It's a clot buster medication given. And whenever they were unable to treat her in time for this, it, it completely changed her opportunity for a, a more complete, successful recovery. Right. And were there other um, issues or other factors in the case that the doctors may have been looking at on that first ER visit? Yes. Yes. So she had used cocaine about 48 hours prior to her first admission, which we know that cocaine can increase blood pressure. 
Right. But as I explained to my attorney on this, just because they had known that she had used cocaine, it didn't give them a license to not treat her and manage her effectively. In fact, right. it made her higher risk to have this elev- like extremely elevated blood pressure that could have caused and did, in my opinion, cause the stroke, which completely changes the landscape of the case. And then the next question we often get as medical consultants in these cases that have merit, because not all of them do, the ones that do, we are sometimes then asked to refer a medical expert that can offer uh, affidavit of merit, certificate of merit, or formal review within the specialty. So what kind of stroke was this? Medullary stroke. Medullary stroke. So that's in the brainstem, right? Correct. So it wasn't in her cortex. She wasn't uh, having trouble talking or communicating. But these uh, medullary uh, strokes, vertigo, dizziness, uh, trouble with balance, nausea, vomiting, uh, trouble swallowing, even hiccups, those are all signs of that kind of a stroke. So do you think with the the symptom of the trouble swallowing, the vomiting, and the high blood pressure that uh, maybe they should have uh, caught this on the first visit? So th- there's no doubt. There's no doubt. And that was my opinion. And it would have at least warranted, at the very least, an observation period with close follow-up, at which time she would have been treated uh, immediately once they had detected she, that she had had her stroke. You know, it was my opinion because they did a CT scan originally that she did not, it, it's not like the CT scan missed the stroke initially. Right. It's just that the discharge and the time that passed from when she came back is what sealed her fate of having a more serious, more uh, a negative, a worse prognosis. Right. And by the way, did you help get an expert for that case? Yeah, I sure did. So we, as you know, Armin, we as medical legal consultants have a network of physicians that we keep close touch with who do expert work. And the uh, variety of you know experts in the different specialties that we were able to call on, I was able to provide a well-credentialed, you know, somewhat regional expert to provide uh, con- the, the final expert opinion on this matter so that the attorney could move forward with filing the case. Yeah. And needless to say, the attorney didn't move forward in this particular case. The attorney did in fact move forward. Yes. Hey, Great. well, Armin, let's jump in. You had, you had, uh, let's do something other than a case. We had talked about as part of uh, when we discuss our services with attorneys, you know, one of the things that I know always gets their eyes, their eyeballs get real big. Whenever I'm having my initial meetings with them and my discovery calls, whenever I mention that we also are able to estimate and discuss future medical care and costs and put them in our, in our comprehensive medical summary reports, they, they seem to get very excited about that. Could you elaborate? Yeah. Yeah. So Obviously, in some cases, it makes sense for the attorney to hire a certified life care planner. Now, obviously, we're not certified life care planners, but in most cases, what can be quite helpful in the case is for us to 
give our opinions regarding future medical care and costs. And a lot of attorney clients will ask us to provide this service. So we're going to provide this service either in one of two ways. First, we always include our opinions to a reasonable degree of medical probability or medical certainty with regard to future medical care and costs for every injury in the case, as you said, Mike, as part of a medical summary report. And most often these medical summary reports are included in settlement demand letters. Another way that attorneys ask us to do this is some attorneys just want a report that's strictly future medical care and costs. That's the whole report. It's much shorter than a comprehensive medical summary report, but it allows us to give our opinions with regard to all of the various medical damages, all the injuries in the case, and give our opinion, not only on what we think the treatments are, but the cost of those treatments. And Armin, I'll jump in and mention that sometimes that's even unclear when I say that in my meetings, but that once they see the chart, can you go into detail about how, how it's, it's, so, it's so clear, clearly done even in a chart at the end of the reports? Right. So we'll always give our uh, that opinion in two forms. We give it in chart form. So on the left-hand side of the chart are all the treatments that we think the client should have. And on the right side of the chart are opinions with regard for uh, the cost uh, of those treatments. And as you know, Mike, I've been doing this for 15 years. And what I've found is that even very, very good attorneys often tend to underestimate future medical care and costs. So let me give you a couple of quick examples. As you know, when physical therapy ends, it should always end with a home exercise program. So now this isn't a big cost in the case or big damage, but one thing that we'll always include is the cost of a gym membership for three years so the client can continue their home exercise program. Something else that's come up recently in a lot of cases is uh, the standard, uh, the gold standard of treatment for certain conditions like a disc injury, sometimes soft tissue injuries and so forth has been steroid injections. But more recently, there's this thing called platelet-rich plasma, PRP, and it is replacing steroid injections as the first treatment of choice for a lot of injuries. In fact, I read recently that pro football players, if they're injured, along with the conservative treatment that they're getting, one of the first things that happens is they will get PRP injections. Hmm. So the uh, patient's own blood is withdrawn, and then it's spun down in a centrifuge. They take the platelets out. They manipulate those platelets. Those platelets have what are called growth factors in them. And then that serum, the clients, the patient's own serum is injected back into the disc or into the facet joint or into the tendons or into a partially torn muscle. And this is now a new field of medicine. It's called regenerative medicine. And it actually started here in Denver where I'm from. And many, many years ago, I met this physician, Christopher Centeno, who actually developed regenerative medicine. And 
uh, we were having uh, dinner together, a whole bunch of us that did injury work got together for an informal dinner to share ideas. And now uh, this has really become a new field of medicine and really the first treatment of choice for a lot of uh, traumatic injuries. Now, are you recommending this kind of as a new uh, putting it on the radar of the attorney and, and the patient, or is this something that the treating doctors have also alluded to? Yes. Yeah, so s- some treating doctors will uh, allude to it, but oftentimes we're the first ones to suggest to the attorney and the attorney's client that this may be the best way to go for these kinds of injuries. Now, when you're doing these estimates, how are you coming up with your numbers how do you come up with the different varieties? I mean, you've mentioned two like examples, but obviously every case is, is uh, has a lot of variety. How are you coming up with the? Or you, please, you know, share with our listeners how you come up with these numbers so that it's you're not just pulling them out of left field. Right. So there are really four main ways that we do this. First is certainly when I started doing this. But if I'm stumped on something, I can always pull a colleague aside and get a curbside consult and say, hey, here's the situation. Uh, would this, uh, what would be your treatments for this? And uh, the orthopedic surgeon friend of mine says, well, I think this is going to go to a disectomy. Well, that's great. I appreciate that information. And by the way, how much do you charge for that treatment. So I'll have an accurate number for that treatment. So one way we can do it is we can always get a curbside consult from one of our friends or colleagues. You know, another thing, Armin, that is possible is we keep notes as well. You know, we review thousands of pages of medical records on, if not a daily basis, sometimes on a weekly basis. And we we pay really close attention to what these treating docs are doing for the treatments and they do repeat. And so I know that I also keep notes and we keep uh, kind of a database of sorts, especially over the dozens of cases. I mean, you're, you're well beyond my numbers on these. You're in the the hundreds or thousands, you know, uh, the, the patterns repeat, the costs may be adjusted for, uh, where in the country the care is being provided. But I keep notes and uh, the the medical records are often telling and cross over into other cases. I'll watch on what one treating doctor is doing on a different case. That's right, Mike. In fact, I recommend that all the physicians that are doing medical legal consulting pay very close attention to what the treating doctors in their community are doing so they can keep uh, files of various conditions and what the treating doctors are doing. Now, another way that we have to do this is we go to the literature, right? We want to back up our opinions with evidence from the medical literature. And for just about any kind of condition, you can go to the medical literature and find a review article of what are the treatments, what are the current treatments for whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, you can go to the medical literature, and almost always find the article, and then you can quote that article in the report. I've absolutely done that. It was, I think last month, I had a woman with severe unremitting back pain after a car crash, and I found a review article that was specifically related to her first surgery needing revised that showed a different type of surgery that was uh, had been kind of become the standard of care for revision. And I, I simply included that 
review article with the the new procedure and recommended that my attorney uh, inform the client that get reevaluated for that new procedure to be done. I think the fourth thing you had mentioned, there were four. I know that we, if, if this is what you're thinking, we have this network of physicians across the country that are a resource to us who practice and, and, you know, whether they're orthopedic surgeons, whether they're neurologists, ER docs, whatever it might be, they are treating uh, patients using the modalities that we find come up in these cases, whether it's PTSD, whether it's uh, neuropsych evaluations, they're all all being done in our network of medical legal consultants. And so we leverage those connections as well. Right. In fact, we have our own in-house listserv and we can communicate back and forth by email. When an email goes out, all the doctors in our network get to see it. So we can say, hey, has anybody uh, ever get a case? It's unusual. Say, has anybody ever seen a case of X? And what's the treatment for it? We and, sure do. And I'll tell yeah. you what, Armin, we, that's how I've also, you know, we share experts that way too within our network. Whenever, like jumping back to the first case we talked about today, you know, I found experts within our network because we know we know some of the good ones and we share their names. Right. Anything else on that, Mike? Or? No, no, no. That's all. I, I think we should just uh, cut it short here on the this episode. But do you want to you want to tell us about what our plans were for this next episode and what our listeners might expect to hear about? Yes, yes. So another service that attorneys ask us to do is we can actually physically sit in and observe independent medical exams, which then puts us in a position to write IME rebuttal reports. And we'll talk about one of these situations in our next episode, but, but let me give you the, um, the headline. The headline is the client and I were sitting in the IME doctor's waiting room. The IME doctor's waiting room was packed. He had partners. It was just teeming with patients waiting to be seen. The guy comes out and says, uh, I'll see the patient, but you can't come in. And I said, well, the uh, attorney has instructed both the client and I that if I can't observe the IME, we are instructed to leave. And at the top of his lungs, this guy yells, I don't give a F what you think. (laughs) And every head turns, you could hear a pin drop, and you could hear the whole story next week. And for our listeners, if you have any questions or comments, please take a moment and email us at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com and feel free to visit us on the web at www.physicianshelpingattorneys.com where you can find our most recent podcast episodes. Thanks for listening to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. For more information about the show and to listen to all the podcast episodes, go to physicianshelpingattorneys.com. You can also email Armin and Mike at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com.